You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following short segment is a reading from Calling from the Bottom, But You Don't Hear Me, a Detroit Become Human fanfiction story written by today's guest fanfiction author, Amelia F. 25. Carefully, Hank stepped around Connor, hand now comforting and supporting his weight, and started to lead him forward. The staff, three nurses and a doctor, hesitantly moved out of their way. Memories of their kidnapping were no longer overlapping his real-time vision, but Connor could not help the latent mistrust he was feeling. He stopped short, glaring at the ACF staff, and shuffled a little so that Hank was more behind him. What I say before, these guys ain't gonna do nothing to me. And if they try, you'll fuck them up. Connor nodded gravely. He would wreck their shit. Obviously. Hank snorted for some reason. Before he could question him on it, though he didn't know if he could, since he appeared to have the same energy level as a small kitten at the moment, Hank had moved back to Connor's side and started the trek again, guiding his now fully shaking form into the bed. A jolt of fear struck and coursed through his circuits as the nurses quickly started to reconnect the various wires to his ports. Being surrounded and knowing that he would be rendered unconscious again. Defenseless again. Useless. What if something happened to Hank while he was out? Gave him a panicky sort of energy. Like his systems were clawing at his reserve power. It made his therium pump pound painfully against his chest. And had a contradicting, draining effect on his body. He flailed weakly. Unsure of what he was searching for until he snagged Hank's shirt sleeve. Connor clutched it like it was all he had in the world. Shh. You're okay, son, Hank said softly, carting his fingers through his hair. Connor hadn't realized he'd been whimpering until he stopped. Try and get some sleep. Don't go. I won't. I swear to God, I'll be here when you wake up. Hank's voice sounded strange, like there was something clogging his throat. Connor hoped he wasn't getting sick. That way you can beat the fuck out of anyone in case they try and mess with me, right? Yes. Wake me up early. If they do. Snorting chuckles erupted from the older man. Connor thought he felt a drop of water fall on his hand, though it was possible he imagined it. God, you're such a goofy bastard. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest author for today is Amelia F. 25. She has been a member of AO3 since 2015 and has posted a total of 14 fanfiction stories, one for Harry Potter, and 13 for Detroit Become Human. Amelia25 is part of the RK1K Headcanons blog, which is currently taking requests. She likes horror and kung fu movies, and before COVID, she was taking taekwondo. She also loves to ice skate and rollerblade. 
Amelia F25, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> oh, good to hear. Was there anything that you wanted to correct or add about that bio? No, it's definitely my old school fanfiction.net bio style. I love it. <laughs> I know you remember those, right? When we used to put that stuff in our bios on fanfiction.net. <laughs> I, I um I did the, the the modern limiting since then. And then you know what and you came at me with all this nostalgia and I was like, you know what? I gotta bring it back. I tell you all about how I love sunflower seeds and, and I like to hike. All this unnecessary information. I was like, I gotta, she gotta know. <laughs> I know. It was like, get to know your author. Oh, love it. <laughs> in the bio. For sure, that was a thing back in the day, guys. For all of you fanfiction dinosaurs like us who remember, that's the way it was back yeah. in the old days. And you put it in script format and you tell everything no one cares about. Exactly. I love it. Now, speaking of old school. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. When did you first discover fan fiction and what was that experience like for you? So let me paint the picture. It was summer 1999. And that's like colloquially 20 BC for all you young folks. <laughs> <laughs> my parents, they've been divorced for a while. Uh, I was spending the summer with my father in Oakland. We're in a very secluded area. I was on this hill. I had no friends because my friends were back in my house with my mom. And, you know, I was feeling a little isolated. TV and uh, movies and all kinds of electronics were available to me. But I was running out. I was like, uh, I've seen every show. I've, seen, I've, I've done everything. What can I do now? And, you know, reading was, a, was for nerds and losers when I was 11. <laughs> it, was, it was not the thing to do. So... Finally, my last resort was the internet and I was searching like, you know, I was in the Pokemon at that time and I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to try to find some Pokemon online games. I don't know. So I was just searching Pokemon and I found this website and it had like cards and, um, you know, Pikachu bios and all kinds of bullshit. And I combed through it and I went through everything except for the story section. I was like purposely avoiding it because I was like reading nerds. No. And <laughs> finally, I... <laughs> I, you know, I ran out of things to do. They didn't like have any flash games. They just had like some fan art and Pokemon information. So I, I was like, okay, I guess I'll see this stupid nerdy shit. <laughs> and I, I was like rolling my eyes as I clicked it like, uh, first page, whatever. <laughs> I look at it and I'm like, oh, put my glasses down. Like, excuse me, what is this? What is this stuff? What is this stuff I'm suddenly fascinated with? And it was like, I don't know. I was just, like, I tapped into some part of serotonin in my hindbrain. And I was like hooked immediately. And I tore through that 10 pages worth of people posting stories. It was like, I don't know, like 20 or so on each page. It was a really old school website, like a GeoCities or something like that. And I read all through it. And at that point, I was the Pokemon fan fiction master. <laughs> uh, I, had, I had to find it. I had to get more. And so from there, I pretty much went on Google. That's when Google like first started in its birthing years. It wasn't the juggernaut it was today, but it still was like, it had a lot of information. So I, um, I typed into Google. I knew to do that much, at least from like being forced to do <laughs> essays and shit. <laughs> I looked up Pokemon stories. That didn't get me um, a lot. And I was getting pretty frustrated by that until I finally found the phrase fan fiction 
on a couple of places. When you were reading those first batches of Pokemon fan fiction, you didn't know that that's what it was called. No, I had no name for it. It was just Pokemon, Pikachu stories, Ash and, and Pikachu just being homies, living their life outside of the game. I was like, what is this madness? I need more. I need to know their adventures that they don't do in the anime. <laughs> Who is coming up with this? It must be geniuses only. So I, I finally found like a term fan fiction. And then when I typed it into Google, suddenly a billion pages. I was like, okay, so this is what this is called. Weird, cool. So I do that and I do that for maybe 10 hours a day for three months. I just comb through each page in Google, looking, just checking each page for some stories. And it varied. It was like, it was all those, um, you know, back in the day when they, everybody had their separate fan fiction websites, you know, them archives. And you got the Ash and Misty archive. You got the, the Brock and Misty archive. You got the Ash and the Gary archive. You got the, you know what? It's just Pikachu archive. <laughs> Pokemon rights only archive. So I was going through each one. They had varying lengths of fanfics available, very razzle-dazzle. Everyone had their own spin on it. And I was like, I love all of these. And I went through each one. And it was like maybe, oh, God, 300 pages worth of Google pages and going through each page on each tab. And let me tell you, to go through the entire search history of Google, of Pokemon fanfiction back in 1999 will take you three months of only doing that. <laughs> so that is, that's a little fact for you. Oh, but what a wonderful summer to suddenly be inundated with this brand new hobby and have the time to do it. Like, how wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not my father, though. He was quite concerned. He was like <laughs> worried about, um, you know, obviously the other Internet predatory things that all parents of that time were worried about. But he would see my page and he was very suspicious. He's like, it can't possibly only be Pokemon. So he'd just be looking. <laughs> Every now and then, it's like it's just Pokemon still, right? And I'm like it's still Pokemon, Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> See, that's a good dad. He did have his finger on the pulse of technology at that time. I was very fortunate. My dad always had like laptops and like the latest one, latest uh, game station. Did I just say game station? Latest console, Jim Lord. <laughs> yeah, he always had the latest um, tech. So I had uh, you know newest old '90s laptop ready for me, and we didn't even have. What, what, the dial-up? He had, he had a card, so I was living large over there. Oh, man. Yeah, the rest of us were on dial-up back then. Yeah, I did when I went back home. I had to go back to the peasant life. But during that summer, I had a clean ticket of fan fiction for three months straight. And yeah, just if you just eat Gushers, you can live off Gushers only and just read fan fiction. <laughs> I swear to God, I, I think I got to the last two pages of Google. I don't know if you can do that anymore. <laughs> no, you can't. But back then you could. Yes. And I, and I reached the end and I was like, wow, what a summer. <laughs> oh my God. Fan fiction and gushers. Now, okay, so did your dad know what you were reading? Did he understand that this was Pokemon fan fiction written by other fans? He understood that it was Pokemon stories, much like me. I, I hadn't quite wrapped my head around other fans either. I just thought everyone was a professional. <laughs> I assume everyone was much older than me already. These are just a bunch of uh, internet adults. I don't know what I was thinking. Like these are these are people that know how to build websites. And I wasn't even thinking like teenager or young adult at all. I was thinking 40, 30 year olds. It wasn't until I got on uh, fanfiction.net that I realized like, oh, it's everyone. It's, it's it's me. It's me. People like me are doing this. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's interesting because a lot of the people that I talk to, people in our age range. When we were discovering fan fiction, we were trying to hide that from our parents. Most of us were. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to because, like, unlike uh, other parents, my dad was very technological savvy. He would have been able to just check it. He was like, no, no you're lying. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was more, um, he was ahead of me in terms of internet. <laughs> 
that time I was like TV or nothing. I, I didn't like, I didn't like reading and like writing. I, you would never associate me with child me at that time. You'd be very confused. <laughs> you said you were about 11 when that happened. Now, what inspired you from there to become a writer yourself? It was a couple things. Firstly, I finally hit the apex, the magnum opus of Pokemon fan fiction. It was actually this little story. I don't know. You may not have heard of it if you are not a Pokemon fan. It was called Pokemon Master by A. Sanchez. And it was everything. It had its own little website. It had like 10 chapters. It was about 300,000 words. It was nonsense. It was a, a action, a dark adventure mashup with Pokemon. <laughs> All the characters were in their early 20s. And to me, that was full grown. You know everything in your life. So I was like, these grown people and their stories, I need this. <laughs> it was very action, adventure based, very clearly inspired by animes like Dragon Ball Z and Yu Yu Hakusho and things like that. So it matched all that up, all that action-packedness with character and story. And uh, it was very, very interesting, very wild. May not hold up today, but it was it was good. It was good to me at 11. I think it would probably be good to me at like 32. <laughs> to me, it was the magnum opus. <laughs> so I read that. And at that point, though, when I read that, I, that was it. Like, Pokemon, done. Like, what could be better than this? So I finally got into uh, Harry Potter. And I also figured out fanfiction.net. I was like, oh, this is where it's all organized. I don't have to search every Google page on Earth. No more web ring. Yeah, yeah, no more, <laughs> no more angel fire. <laughs> I was combing through there, the, the Harry Potter section, but I could never find the equivalent of that to Pokemon Master. Like, not to say that there weren't like some mm, chef's kiss fanfics of Harry Potter. I fell in love with a lot from then and now too, but I could never find one like that. So I'll, me, now I'm 12, now I've read every fanfiction on earth on Google of Pokemon. I was like, I'm, I'm seasoned. Like, and also realizing that people my age and only a little bit older were also contributing. Like, hey, you know what? You know, maybe I can do it. Maybe I'll do this. So that's, <laughs> so me and my hubris, I was like, oh, I'm going to make that equivalent. <laughs> I want an action-packed Harry Potter story. <laughs> but I was going to make it even better because I was like, I'm not going to have it bogged down with, all that, with that romance subplot too. Well, there's a lot there with the Harry Potter canon. Yeah, the canon itself and the, you know, the fandom is obviously wild with it at that time and now. And I couldn't find that anywhere. I couldn't find hardly any gen. So I was like, oh, okay, you, you have to be your own hero here. You got to do it. <laughs> so uh, I was inspired by like all the, the billions of 90s action movies that I watched, all the, all the kung fu movies, all the Jackie Chan movies, Jet Li, the shonen animes that molded me into the master craftsman that I am. <laughs> and I, I, just, I brought all that information and I just chucked it at a Harry Potter story. And, and uh, yeah, that's what inspired me. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like the Harry Potter fan fiction craze was really kind of the apex of fanfiction.net when it was in its heyday. Yeah, it was, it was like it all happened at once. Like, I think it was 2002 or so. Book four had came out and it left a big gaping hole of what ifs and fanfiction.net started and, you know, just match made in heavens. Like people could put in their um, their predictions. I think that helped every day. It was just like thousand stories, thousand stories, thousand stories coming in. I was always getting fed stuff and I, I had the confidence because of that. You know, there's so many like I, I felt both insignificant and confident that I could do right. it. Like if my stuff sucks, nobody's going to notice. But if my stuff's banging, I'm going to be famous. I love that. The confidence of a 14-year-old who's writing her first fan fiction. <laughs> yes. I, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I wish somebody would flame me. I can't wait to tell them how wrong they are. <laughs> oh. 
I was waiting for waiting for fights. Now, I have heard that there are a lot of trolls and a lot of flaming that goes down on fanfiction.net, especially back in the day. Did that ever happen to you? Surprisingly, no. I was waiting for it because it would happen to like all the authors I'd read. They, they, they're always, you know how it is. There'd always be an AN at the beginning or end of their story describing the haters, like, and, you know, them combating with them because that was before the response system they have now. You had to talk to them in their, in your notes. So I would always see that. And again, it was the inadequacy and confidence like clashing with each other. So I was like, my work sucks, but I want to prove to you with hateful words how it doesn't stranger <laughs> so i was waiting for it but nobody did like i i didn't get the in-depth meanness that a lot of other authors unfortunately did like people cutting into the writing itself unnecessarily putting in like they're siskel and ebert and i'm criticizing you but also i want your dad to die or something like that you know what i mean <laughs> just unnecessary and i was and that's what i was waiting for the worst i would get was like you curse too much the story would be there if only you didn't curse or um some strange person who already hated Harry Potter, so they were clearly just like, just wanted to start something off of nothing. It'd be like, yeah, this isn't in the Bible. Harry Potter's evil. Where are, where are you? Are you lost? You need help? <laughs> why, why am I talking? Why would I talk to them? So I would never get the snobby troll who's like, uh, you can't take sarcasm, can't take satire, or can't take criticism. Like, uh, I'm just, you know, just putting a little bit of spice on there on top of my uh, helping you. Like, I, I wanted that too. I just wanted to fight somebody because I was too shy to make friends with any of the authors because I thought they were all better than me. Obviously, I was a I was but a, a pleb amongst these um, beautiful creators. So I wanted to fight them in my own way <laughs> when people came at me. <laughs> Every time I post a chapter, it was like, okay, who's it gonna be? Who's gonna talk shit this time? And but there was never this time because no one ever talked shit. <laughs> it was a lot of build up for nothing. That's just so funny that you went into it like that. Fascinates me. I can just kind of picture you as a teenager sitting there waiting for that fight to come to you. But at the same time, though, it's kind of a healthy thing to already have in your mind when you're posting something to the Internet. Not everybody is going to like this and I might get some blowback for it. And to just be prepared for that and not be like, oh, well, I'm going to stop writing forever if I get a bad review or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I uh, absolutely agree with that. And, you know, looking back, I, I wished everyone reacted like me uh, like people would like i would see people just break down because of that and like oh you know having personal taunts thrown at you because you know you put like an uh, update in your bio saying like oh uh, you know my family i'm going through a family emergency and then people you know throw that back in your face that, that's hurtful especially if you're like a teenager or a young adolescent yeah so i mean I get that now but at least younger me was like why are you like why do you even give that information and why do you not expect people to be hateful on this extremely public platform. I didn't understand that when I was little. I do a little bit now. You know, some people just don't come in with that expectation. Definitely the demographic has changed since then. Like everyone who's anyone is on the internet. If you're not on the internet, then that's actually a problem now as opposed to before when there was more of a choice, I think. I mean, but also I didn't take into consideration that that was their escape. So if you're escaping into more bullying, <laughs> obviously you're gonna have a really bad reaction. It's not great to put all your eggs into um, that kind of coping mechanism either, but, you know, a little teenager's not going to know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish more people were like me. They would have been a lot happier and, I don't know, maybe a lot angrier, too, because I was, I was mad <laughs> all the time. 
We all were. It was the nineties. So yeah, nineties uh, grunge times. <laughs> if you weren't grungy, you weren't you weren't doing it. <laughs> now I know we were talking before the show a little bit about how you became introduced to Detroit Become Human, which is the fandom that you're representing today. How did you discover Detroit Become Human, and what do you like about it? So I discovered it through um, Let's Plays at first. Well, Let's Plays like clips, pretty much. I didn't get like a, the entire viewing of it. I saw it on Game Grumps, saw it on Jacksepticeye, it's uh, Markiplier, all the... I don't know if Markiplier did. But anyway, I saw it on a couple of Let's Plays. And, you know, that was really interesting, especially the commentary about it from, like, uh, people in the comments and stuff like that. I don't know, it just caught me like others didn't for some reason, like other Let's Plays, like No Way Out or some other game. For some reason, that did. So I looked a little bit more into it on Tumblr, and people were writing some banger stories. I was like, okay, like, maybe I need to play this game. <laughs> so I did. And I really got into what everyone else was getting into. The, the graphic design is beautiful. The story setting is really nice. The characters and their relationships, um, awesome. And also, I just all uh, always like sci-fi and the you know the AIs have a soul trope mm -hmm. that you see yep. in it often. You know, like in Blade Runner and Ex Machina, and her like those kind of movies have always captured me in general. Or fiction and you know this game seemed to be you know the latest take on it and i was interested i admit that i don't play a lot of video games so i didn't know very much about this one before i started researching for this episode but i was really intrigued by the overall story of the video game and also intrigued by the different characters i know like the names of the basic ones like connor and hank and marcus who are your favorite characters from Detroit Become Human and why are they your favorite? So my favorite, you know, if you've read a couple of my fics, you know, it was Connor. I like Marcus. Uh, I like Hank. And I like, I don't know if you got that far, but I like Kamsky and um, Amanda. Those are my favorite ones. So I loved Connor in the game for like, you know, he was witty. He had some cool dialogue. I liked his little story arc. It was awesome. I loved all his scenes. All of his interactions with the characters when it culminated were great. I mean, I love Marcus because I like this little relationship that they had, as brief as it was, with uh, Carl and Leo. Pretty much I liked all of his scenes as well, except for the, the Jericho part where you have to initially get there. Oh, God, he's just walking. <laughs> it, was just, it was like 20 minutes of walking. Like, I cannot believe you made me do this game. And then you cut to another scene. I, <laughs> I wanted to fight. Also, just Jesse Williams in general is a beautiful man. So I was like, Love at first sight there. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, yeah. And I like Hank, Clancy Brown. He really killed it. Just his character. I like their characters way more than actual gameplay. Let me just bring up that. He was really raw and a real character. He killed it. Yeah, his performances were great and I loved it. Even with some of dialogue is trash, but he helped. <laughs> he helped bring it to life. And I like Amanda. She's that little AI character. I love her outfits. She just uh, stuck to her bitch character. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, big crush. Love her. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. Today we are talking about two of your Detroit Become Human one-shots. You wrote one called You Are Not Alone and another one called Calling From The Bottom But You Don't Hear Me, which are both really compelling one-shot depictions of the relationship between Connor and Hank. What are these stories about and what made you want to tell them? So calling from the bottom, what I wanted to do with that was pretty much 
find how many different ways I could show how much Connor cares about Hank and vice versa without explicitly saying it. So it was a, a bit of a writing experiment. I generally hate exposition, even though I think I do a lot of it, a lot more than I say I don't, but you know, I try, I try to avoid it. So I like to speed run relationships, as it were. <laughs> I, want, I want to show you without saying it too much explicitly. And I want to show it through their actions and their emotions, how, how they've been, you know, they've been together for a few years. They've been through it. And I also want to show Connor still has the existential dread about Hank being a, a human person, easier to kill. <sighs> And, you know, his age in general, I wanted that to come out through him being a little looser through hallucinating and, you know, being drugged and things like that. And that's what I wanted to show through that story. I love that you describe it that way because, you know, I got that impression when I was reading that story because I am going into it fandom blind. I couldn't figure out why is Connor so upset about Hank? Because you could tell that he was very scared yeah. for Hank, right? Yes. And I was like, okay, obviously Hank is very important to Connor. Yeah. I get that. But I just couldn't understand why because <laughs> I was going in fan of like, so you made that happen in the story beautifully. It came out beautifully because I was like, yeah, if nothing else, I know uh -huh. that this Hank is very important to Connor. Yeah. I, well, that's my, my experiment. It's like, can somebody who's never with all my stories like can someone who's never seen or read this before figure out what's going on with as little information as possible so i'm forcing a challenge that nobody asked for upon them <laughs> well it worked out yeah, right, yeah, yeah. by the end of it i was like i think i know what's going on here yeah yeah like, can you tell that they like when i'm writing with the reader like can the reader tell that they have a close relationship based on yeah. based on actions pretty much right. not on them saying it which i think you did a really great job on oh thank on your you other <laughs> one you are not alone yeah that one okay i read calling from the bottom first mm -hmm. and then i read you are not alone and i'm glad that i actually did it in that order because calling from the bottom helped me understand like okay there's a relationship between these two characters and they're both important to each other and then you are not alone really built on that understanding Oh, good. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. Because I'm not necessarily writing in chronological order, as in you don't have to, you know, read any one or two to understand the other. But they are like, I try to keep it in the general universe. So sometimes there'll be callbacks from other stories into another one. But aside from that, they're all standalone. But oh, yeah, I'm glad you got that from there. But um, with the You Are Not Alone and that one, I wanted to show Connor him trying to ask for help, you know, show his emotions but how he's still struggling to do that. Like, he does want to, but he doesn't know how to. And how he still subconsciously thinks about himself as expendable, like how he did in the game. Well, you might not have gotten that far in the game or seen it, but that's a theme in there. In the game, he can be replaced if he dies. You've seen that part? I understand that he is an android, yes. right? And it seems like in the game, these androids have different levels of sentience or sense of self. And I feel like Connor has that whole journey through the game, right? They all do. So everyone is pretty much striving to be sentient. However you interpret the game, maybe they always had it and they just, you know, needs to be unlocked in some way. But for Connor, he is an android, but he's a bit of a, a special case because for the other androids who, you know, when they deviate, that means they're sentient. So all the other deviants, when they get killed, they're done, just like a person. When Connor dies, there's another duplicate of him that comes in. But the problem is, is uh, his his memories get adjusted, or like oh. st some like like you know more emotional memories start leaving him every time he dies. Mm -hmm. It becomes more machine like. If you get to like uh, uh, Connor 58, at that point, it's probably too late to deviate him because he's too machine like. 
in my little universe, I have him as the original one. And in my playthrough, he never died. So I was like, let me just go from that. But he's aware that he can be replaced because they all knew that uh, all the little models, they get their, um, their memory implanted in another one. That's the exact same one, but you know, some of their memories are gone or some of their emotions are gone. So he knows that's a possibility and he still sees himself as that, even though that didn't happen in this universe. Uh, so he's still struggling with that. And that's shown how he doesn't really, you know, think twice, as you saw, stitching himself up because that was the prompts with stitches. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of seemed like he wanted to take care of it on his own and not be a bother yes. to anybody else yeah, yeah, as yeah. if someone else caring about him is somehow like an inconvenience or something. Yeah, that's his uh, his struggle because that's, you know, that's him and that's all the story of the game is the androids, you know. There's these little dolls that'll do all this stuff for me and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, get beyond that that they're, you know, they're they're another species essentially. They they're another creature that thinks and feels and loves and hates and things like that. For Connor's case, he in his arc in the game, he struggles with that because he's working for the people that want to make the androids go back to being regular machines. He's got this little dichotomy of I was once the bad guy and I want to redeem myself on one hand, but also was he ever the bad guy because he was also being controlled. So he's always struggling with that. And I want to show that in there. <laughs> I love that because it makes such a rich, complex character to work with. Easy go-to because he's got all all the baggage. <laughs> and it was just really fun watching his interactions, especially in You Are Not Alone. We were talking about tropes before the show a little bit and how much fun they are. And to me, it was like a found family. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Found family tropes, my favorite. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite, too. And I was like, oh, this is found family. I love it. Oh, good. You got that fandom blind. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Now, part of my research before this show, I did go to Reddit. I know I talk about Reddit a lot, but I'm I'm there all the time. And I thought, huh, I wonder what people on Reddit are saying about the relationships in Detroit Become Human. So I went on there and it seemed like some of the people there really saw the relationship between Connor and Hank as more of like, mentor-mentee relationship. And then there were others who argued that it was more a father-son dynamic. And then I know that there are also people that ship them together. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, in your view, what is the relationship between Connor and Hank and what makes that interesting? Well, I'm definitely, if you couldn't tell, I'm in the father-son camp. <laughs> From the game, they were more of a leaning towards mentor-mentee, but mostly like equal friends because they're just both too they're too messed up people both have too much baggage to ha have one person have like being any kind of guiding slash power role over the other so i i don't think either of them would want to be a mentor mentee even if that's what will be organically happening from the game only and that's of course my opinion well that's the beauty of, of the game and fan fiction you could pick out kernels from aspect of many scenes and you're like oh that part proves father son that part proves relationship that part proves mentor and mentee. So I chose my colonel to be father-son. <laughs> yeah, I like that dynamic because I just, well, you know, as you saw, I just love a found family trope, of course. And, <laughs> of course. So, I, and so I'll try to stick it in anything if I can. If it's possible, I'll make anybody, um, you know, a family, <laughs> whether whether it's reasonable or not. <laughs> but, you know, in, in my, my fan in view, Hank's grateful to Connor for giving him his spark on life back. And um, I think he would step up to try to help Connor by by helping himself, which I like a lot. I like exploring that through all my fix, you know, dropping kernels 
helping himself and become a better person because Connor is in a vulnerable state and that he might not get as much help from Jericho because, you know, he's he's the Manchurian agent. He's the, you know, he was on both sides of the team. So there will be drama there. I think the mentor-mentee aspect would naturally evolve into father-son in my fix, <laughs> specifically. I just love people helping themselves so that they can help others. I love that um, idea. I love writing about that. And I, I put that in my stories. I love that too. It's such a delicious relationship dynamic to me. That's the mm, that's the tea. That's the, the delight. Yeah. That's the, the sulfate sprinkle. All your toxicity, just getting it out, <laughs> juicing it, cleansing it. And then you help the person that needs most. The chef's kiss, right? Yes, you yes. said that earlier. And I thought that was so great. I usually have a favorite line or two from stories that I read. It's just what I do. So my favorite lines from your work come from You Are Not Alone. And it's Hank's line when he's talking to Connor. And this is what he says. He says, what I'm getting at here is you don't got to suffer in silence. I don't want you to suffer in silence. And before you say anything, yes, I know there's nothing I can do about it. It's about being, you know, comforting and that kind of bullshit. And I don't know anything about Hank. I've never played the game, but his personality came through so strong oh, yay. <laughs> in that line, you know, because he's just no nonsense. He's upset that Connor's keeping something from him. I've been told that Hank starts out at the beginning of the game angry, drunk, depressed, repressed, because he's had some tough things happen to him yes. in his past. Yeah. But with his interactions with Connor, those interactions have allowed him that opportunity to soften, to explore his own humanity on a deeper level. I get the sense that his interaction with Connor helps him to open up and experience connection on a deeper, more human level. And he's experiencing emotions other than anger and sadness, which I think is a really beautiful dynamic to explore. <laughs> really compelling. What was your favorite line from either of your stories and why is that line your favorite? Uh, okay, let's see. I wrote that down. Oh, it was, um, this is the part where uh, Nines and Connor are talking through their <laughs> Android <laughs> communication, which they can do in the game. That's not, I didn't just add that. So it starts, uh, sorry, what I meant to say was I did not want Hank to know that. Why? Nine shot back, demanding an innocent all at once. He shifted his eyes at Hank and back to Connor, suddenly uneasy. Is the lieutenant not trustworthy? And I like this part because, you know, I, I, I cannot get through any kind of drama without dropping humor in it. That's a, that's a personality flaw as well as a writing one. <laughs> no, it's not a flaw, though, because the interaction between Connor and Nines was hilarious. Yes, I loved yes. It. I like to put people through an emotional roller coaster. I get feels, 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 comedy. Angst, angst, feels, feels, comedy, comedy, comedy. Yeah, I don't, I, my tone, what tone? I don't do that. <laughs> From there, I wanted to uh, show that Nines is a, uh, you know, that uh, he's a little confused, <laughs> but, uh, but his heart's in the right place kind of meme right there. So I, I, I just, I like doing that. <laughs> and, you know, I like to show that he's a uh, ride or die for Connor all day. I like to put that in my fake at some point, you know. <laughs> they all love each other. I just like to show it in their own way. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool that they kind of had that sibling relationship. Yeah, that's the idea. I just want to show that this is what, Machine Brothers would act like. <laughs> <laughs> Machine Brothers. Yes, Robo, Robo Brothers would be this way. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> the titles for your stories are really unique. And I was just wondering how you chose the titles for those. So uh, with Calling from the Bottom, that came from um, a band called Starset, uh, their song Diving Bell. It's like one of their lyric lines. And every time I heard that song, it's my favorite song. And I always picture someone like in a coma or 
in some kind of state where they're reaching out from like either another reality or reaching out to get someone to help them. And in this case, I saw it in the story because I always write my stories before I write a title. In this case, it was um, Hank breaking through Connor's delirium. That's what the, the line's supposed to represent. He's at the bottom. Mentally, he's at the bottom of like, you know, rock bottom. And, you know, no one hears him. But um, Hank does. That's what I want to show from that one. And you are not alone. I just wanted to show that Connor is not alone in more ways than one. And Connor can trust these people to help him when he doesn't even know that he needs help. So it's like a, a you are not alone. He knows that, but he doesn't really know that. So it's like a re-emphasizing. Yeah, it's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to know it. Now. Act on what you have, right? Yeah, exactly. And especially when like, and, and that's one of the things I loved about that story is obviously he has some internalized ideas. Yes. Right? Of his relationship sometimes. But when his found family kind of helps him challenge those a little bit and be like, no, actually, we do care that you're in pain and we do want to help you. And they're also learning to spell it out for him. Like, you can't just count that he's going to find nuances like a person would or like someone who wasn't traumatized was. You're going to have to accept that either you're going to have to plow through it, even though it's not comfortable for you, or you're going to have to accept his ways of how it will help him, even though that seems strange. Like with the the list part, I like I like that part too. Where he said, you know what? It was like, you know what? I'm not even mad. We will make a list, even though you said that and it sounded weird and that's so off topic. <laughs> and you know, he reacted favorably to that. So that shows Hank's growth and caring more about understanding Connor as opposed to throwing his ideas on what help is like. Like letting him be who he is and letting him figure it out, but also kind of guiding him along in it a little bit. Yeah, it was just a really sweet dynamic. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, what do you like best about these fics? So from Calling from the Bottom, I like the flashback parts when I wrote it intermingled in the narrative because I hate flashbacks and everything. So I was like, you know what? Since you whine about it so much, Emilia, you, you write it and see if you do better. <laughs> so <laughs> I force challenged myself. And I really liked it. And I'm like, I should maybe stop hating other people for writing flashbacks. But yeah, that was my favorite part. And um, and You Are Not Alone, I liked writing Hank's part the most and his reactions to Connor's injury, trying to keep him in character as much as possible. But uh, keeping him in character, but, you know, showing that he's grown and that he cares. You know, I was going to say, I don't think I mentioned this before, but on Calling from the Bottom, I thought it was really interesting the way that you tried to show Connor rebooting on the page. Yes. Because that was the very first Detroit Become Human story that I've ever read. I understood he was being rebooted, like somehow he was unconscious or something, so he's rebooting. But I thought it was so interesting the way that you visually showed that on the page. I just wanted oh, to Oh, thank know you. Yeah, I like, um, that's also a challenge because that's what I like writing about Connor or Marcus or any of the other androids. You have to write the fact that, you know, one, they're people. And two, how would a person with like metal parts and stuff react to like, you know, uncomfortable things and things like pain? You can't say they have a headache. They don't have like a brain. So... <laughs> So that's that's right. my that's me right. trying to navigate through, uh, you know, Android anatomy, essentially, and also not knowing what I'm talking about, <laughs> but tricking you into thinking <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, that was a journey. That's for sure. I just remember taking a look at what you did visually on the page and being like, wow, that kind of does look like what I would imagine a robot might be thinking or seeing if they're rebooting. They have no idea where they are, where they're waking up. They're confused, disoriented. It was just a wild ride. I loved it. It was great. That was what I was going for. Thank you. I'm glad you saw it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Absolutely. 
Now, with the writing process, do you have any unusual writing quirks that you can share with us? Do you mean like what I do when I'm writing or? Yeah. Like, for example, I have an old writing friend. And every time that she sits down to write, she takes this headscarf. It's like a bandana that she's had forever. It has flames on it. And she loves fire. So she will not write without putting her fire bandana on Oh, okay. You really do mean that. What I do is I mess with my hair continuously. I braid and unbraid parts of it. <laughs> I put it in a ponytail. I put it in a hair clip. I unclip it like over and over again throughout. Like, every time I need to think in between like lines to see if I want to regroup or if I want to write something and I, I can't find a word for it, I'll just start braiding my hair. <laughs> I love that because it probably helps you think with something to do with your fingers. Yes. Right? It's like I can't, I can't get it out on the keyboard, so I'm going to get it out in my, my hair apparently, I guess. I love it. That's awesome. As far as the rest of your writing process goes, what does that look like? What's your usual process? So what I do is I never write an outline or have anything in mind, really. Only thing I do have in mind is I'll have a scene. I'll have a scene or, or a little bit of dialogue that I want. It'll, it'll start that way. And then I will do everything I can to get to that point and then try to close it. And that can happen either in a short one shot like you've seen, or it can happen in an 11,000 word fic <laughs> or, or a chapter fic. I, I just have to like reach that scene and then there's a story. <laughs> do you like the planning best or the writing best or do you like the editing part? Oh, I like the writing best. If I plan, I won't do it. That's why I don't write outlines anymore. For whatever reason, when I do an outline or if I'm planning a story too hard, like without mm -hmm. like doing bare bones, like just writing like a, a bullet point or something, my inspiration goes away because I feel as if I wrote the entire story for some reason. And then I don't want to write anymore. It's like I wrote it already. Why bother doing it? Almost like trapping yourself in a box, you know, because I, I get all the uh, I get whatever I needed to get out that, you know, made me motivated to write the story by doing an outline like that. Oh, I see. So that emotional process of writing it out in an outline makes it so that you feel like there's nothing. Yeah, like, I'm like a computer. It's like you already did this. Why are you doing it again? And I don't like editing too much. And that's that's a problem. I try to do it because that can cause the same problem because I'll feel like I'll trick myself into thinking that uh, you're just you're just gonna add, you just need to add things forever. Why bother posting it? So then I'll end up not posting it. <laughs> it's a fine line because, you know, I, you got to edit it. You know, you messed up somewhere. I mess up all the time. So when I'm doing that, I just I try to use that read back to me thing. I can I can do it in one fell swoop on Word, Microsoft Word. Yeah, so that's that's my process. <laughs> do you ever use a beta reader? I've always wanted to, when I'm too shy. <laughs> so I've never I've never asked in my God, I don't know how many years of writing, not since I was twelve and all the way to thirty two. <laughs> I've never had a beta reader. I think I I tried to get one once and they they didn't want to do it, so <laughs> I never asked again. <laughs> You know, I've always wondered how writers find beta readers. You know? <laughs> like, is there like a beta reader pet shop you can go to and just pick one up? Or like, how does this work? Back, you know, back in the Harry Potter days, in my dark Harry Potter days, uh, and Fiction Alley, I don't know if you've ever been on there. Yes, I have. Even their forums, they had like beta reader call or something like that. So like you would post up there, oh. like I need a beta reader and they, you know. It'd be like a little job application. <laughs> so I know that I know they have forms available, so I can only imagine they have it like on, you know, if you just post it on beta wanted or something on Tumblr or wherever. Yeah, yeah. they they come. <laughs> but I've never asked and I've been too scared. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all I some people use them, some people don't. 
What writing advice would you give to the less experienced fan fiction writers out there? Because you've been writing a long time. Yes. So so my advice would be, if you're able to, read a uh, how to write a fiction book in general, those general ones. Not as like, this is what I have to follow all the time. But you know that saying, to break the rules, you got to know them? They, they super help. They help me. I only took like one class in fiction writing, but even that helped me in so many ways. It helped me um, understand what styles even were and sentence structure. Because uh, when I started, uh, I read books and I read fan fiction. So I was like, I am an expert, obviously, in writing. So I need nothing else. <laughs> I don't I didn't even know how to break off paragraphs. I, I, I've never quite learned that either, actually. <laughs> when to do that. I was just following the shapes of writing. So like how, how they were writing it, I was kind of like copying that. So like I know people started dialogue on another line. So I was like, okay, that's the right way to do it, I guess. But with um how to write like, you know, how to write fiction books, those kinds. I, I had one when I was um in college. They tell you all the rules and it's very helpful, <laughs> actually. And the second thing I want to say is, you know, if you're having the dreaded writer's block, you know, that, that blank page syndrome that we all get, you can try to write your story as if the audience already knows the entire backstory of what's happening. Because some people I know, like a lot of my friends, and I've told them to do this and it's helped them a little bit. So it might help other people, you know, they get stuck on exposition sometimes. They, they get stuck in an exposition loop. They get stuck in a researching loop. You want to write about Greek mythology. You don't know anything about Greek mythology. So you go on Wikipedia and you look everything up as much as you can. And then you find contradicting facts and then you just get stuck looking up research and stuff like that. You know, my advice would be to just start it by writing as if everyone already knows your backstory. Everyone knows your, your world building and then go back and fill the little details in. And I think when you do it like that, it forces you to see how you've already explained your story without going into that detail. See at what points like you you actually don't have to say where that person was from and described it in great detail. You've already kind of did it just from um not telling them in that you know, direct way. So it, it's right, a, telling them yeah, indirectly, yeah. right? You're acting as if they know that, like they're a close friend, like they know the story already. And you think that would be like a, a go-to in fan fiction, right? Because everyone already knows the source material. Uh, some people, you know, uh, they get stuck in their, in their world building sometimes. And I think that that helps. That method might help a little bit or not, but you know, it's just advice. That's perfect. That's wonderful because I can't tell you how many times I see people posting on the fan fiction Reddit page and writer's block is a big deal over there. People struggle with that constantly. So that's beautiful that you were able to give us some really great writer's block advice because I, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people that do get stuck in this phase or that phase. Yeah, yeah. World building's not easy at all. So not, not to it's not not to yeah. the, you know knock on people who do do it, but like if you try to like go in thinking that they uh, already know about it, then you can like get to the the juicy parts that you really want to get to. That's what's fun too, because you know you, maybe not everyone's writing towards a scene that I do, but you know everyone's got their favorite scene they want to get to, and you know sometimes exposition's holding you back, and all you want to do is draw uh, like write a knife fight, <laughs> and you get frustrated by that. <laughs> So I say, like, write the knife fight first, you know, write your knife fight first, and then get back to uh, where everybody came from and the origin of the world. Right. Because like you said, you can always fill in those details later. But getting through the action oriented parts of the story is a really great way of pushing. Yeah. It and it forces some show not tell. Yes, because exactly. you might have found out, like, actually, they'll already know even from this simple line that I wrote. Right. Exactly. Because you were showing. Now we've come to the part of the show where we start talking about your three favorite fan fiction authors that you follow. Oh, yes. Uh, so I have them here and easy. Like to laugh. They're the story that grabbed me in particular was uh, What Does a Deviant Fear? And it's like a 
a story about what if Amanda and um, Connor deviated during the hostage chapter. It's just a masterpiece. So beautiful. It's not done, but oh, I love it. <laughs> and uh, T and KT, they've got a lot of Detroit Become Human fan fiction. Their magnum opus to me is Good Morning Lieutenant, but I love all their other fics too. Just beautiful. Asuna China Doll writes just some magnificent Mandalorian fanfics. Agreed. I'm not sure if I can say this right, but the Silver Cross? It's C-Y-W-S-C-R-O-S-S. And I don't think they've written for DBH, but they, they write a variety of stories and they are just, uh, it doesn't matter if you don't like a fandom, they'll, they'll drag you into it. They're beautiful. They write such beautiful fics. <laughs> So for that author, what fandom do you recall the most out of their uh, So I, w- I was following them since uh, I was a little bit younger. So the uh, one that grabbed me was a, a Harry Potter one called Say La Vie. Oh, okay. Uh, that one's uh, excellent. Like the latest one they wrote was for um, this uh, uh, memoir called uh, Solo Leveling. And they wrote a fic for that. Like, it doesn't matter what genre you write for. You're excellent. That's awesome. I always love following the ones that have been doing it forever because you just get some really choice stuff that way. Yeah, I can always go back to them and they'll write something for another fandom. He's like, you know what? I got to check this out because you wrote it. (laughs) Of course. Absolutely. Thank you for those. We always love to know who people are following because it's really fun being able to do those shout outs for folks. Now, why do you think that fan fiction is worth writing and reading? I believe because you can uh, you can write and read perspectives and uh, and see creativity that you will very rarely see in the mainstream media. It's just no man's land. There's no corporation in someone's ear telling them what check marks they need to fulfill because you're you're writing for you. <laughs> so <laughs> only check mark you're checking off is the one you want. <laughs> And you will see that when they write. And I just love that because you'll always find something for someone. That's what I like to. Awesome. I love that answer because, yeah, you're right. Their story doesn't get checked at the door for any specific content. It's just whatever is in their heart and soul. And that comes out and it's out there in the world and it's beautiful. At least as of now, there's a lot of freedom and I like that too. You're also free just to write the same thing over and over and I love it. We were talking before the show about all those tropes that we never get tired of and that we would read a thousand times. Yes, I am. Write write the found family over and over again. Write the time travel. Write the fix it. It it doesn't matter how you say it. It's from your perspective. And that's what makes it creative and different, even if the genre isn't. Absolutely. 100% ditto on that. Amelia F25, do you have any last words for us? Write for yourself first. I know it's hard in this age where validation is the currency and what keeps you going, but we can get back to that. We can get back to writing for yourself first. I mean, obviously the validation is always going to be there. You're always going to want that. But if you try to check it at the door and say me first, you'll feel a lot better when you first post it and when you post your second one, when you get zero reviews, when you get a, a billion reviews. Preach, girl. Preach. I love it. Amelia F25, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us today. Check out her stories on AO3, folks. Give her some love. If you'd like to reach out, I can be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.